What's up, guys? It's Matt. On this week's episode of the TKW Podcast, I talk with Kyle Maggio, and we rank the Knicks head coaches of the past. From Holzman to Van Gundy to Thomas to Hornacek, there's been a lot of ups and downs in New York when it comes to the man on the sideline. With the Knicks in the market for a new coach, there's really no better time than the present to go back into the annals of Knicks history. It starts happy and then gets mostly sad. We apologize in advance. Let's do this. Hello, folks, and welcome to the TKW Podcast. I'm Matt Spendley, and I'm joined tonight by Kyle Maggio. What's going on? Nothing, man. How you doing? You know, uh, ready for another fantastic pod. Oh, of course. And the best part is we get to enjoy it with all of the just stellar, stellar past Knicks head coaches. They've had such an immaculate track record, especially recently. It, it makes you really... It just makes you perk up. It makes your heart warm to see all these names on a sheet. I gotta say, typing in these sixteen names, something else. Yeah, I, it was a very, it was very conflicted. Is, is the feeling that I felt as I went through the list and, and gave my rankings because, and I saw some of the, some of the people on Reddit that were filling it out seemed to feel the same way because the list is so complex because you have some very very good some hall of fame coaches on there that were just utter train wrecks for this team and then you have guys who were not hall of fame coaches by any means who did very well with this team and it's and it's confusing because you have to rank their time with the knicks so you don't want to you don't want to like really look too far into the before or after of that but it's it's a very yeah, it's very hard to get through when you when you rank it, and then you look at like on face value of those rankings. It, it's hard to to really go through, I guess. But I don't know. It, it was a it was a fun thought exercise. I'll tell you that. I found that part the most difficult was trying to extrapolate their performance as the Knicks coach, and then just as a coach in general. Because, like you said, we had a lot of guys that had come from different backgrounds and maybe weren't great as a Knicks coach, but ended up doing good things elsewhere. Um, just it was tough. It was tough. So here's what we're going to do, guys. We had a Google Forms out there, which so many of you filled out. Thanks to everyone that filled it out. We're mm-hmm. going to go through our two different sides of the bracket, if you will, for the orange and blue. So the blue is going to be all the coaches from 1970 to 2002 that filled a main role and were basically with the team for a- an extended period of time in the not in that it was multiple years, but just that they were given the official coaching tag. And then we're just going to rank them. So we got eight on both sides. We're going to rank them. We're going to talk about what we know, what we feel about them. And we're going to give my take, Kyle's take, and then your guys' take. So we're hoping to do stuff with the Google Forms a lot more. So that's something to keep an eye out for. We we think that this is a great way to get you guys involved. Um, so if you didn't fill it out this time, don't worry. We'll, we'll have more opportunities down the road to do more of this stuff. So let's get right into it. We're going to start with the blue, which is the older era. So 1970 to 2002. And I got to say, my rankings were 
quite different from the listeners. So, Kyle, we'll go eight to five, and we'll give listeners, and then I'll give mine, and then you give yours. So for the listeners, eight to five, we have eight Rick Pitino, seven Stu Jackson, six Don Nelson, and five Willis Reed. I had okay. eight Willis Reed, seven Stu Jackson, six Don Nelson, and five Hubie Brown. And then what did you have? I actually had the same as yours, except uh, Willis Reed was seventh. Okay. I was a little surprised when I saw Rick Pitino at number eight, and I think that's a classic case of recency bias because he was not, so he was ninety and seventy four as a Knicks coach was with them for two years. He came right mm-hmm. from Providence, and then right after they made the playoffs and they made it to the second round, and they lost to who else but Jordan's Bulls, and he immediately left and went to Kentucky because he felt that that was a better job, and I'm sure that that could have influenced people because I don't think Knicks fans think that fondly of Rick Pitino for good reason because he, he kind of upended them after saying he wanted to be here. So I mm-hmm. thought that was really curious. I, I wasn't sure why he was quite that low. I'm not sure what some of the listeners were thinking, and I didn't agree with it. I had him in my top four. Let me, let me just double check my top four here. I just want to make sure I don't want to amend it. Because I feel like three... I feel like three are locked in. Like the top three, it's obvious. If you're if you're being if you're being objective about it, the top three should be obvious. However, you want to right place them. So I'd argue that even the order is fairly obvious. Yeah, maybe you can flip two and three. But the the thing about Patino is, I think it's it's funny because there's a that famous Knicks bomb squad picture from when he was their coach. Mm-hmm. And it's funny to think back. So I like to compare the eras of the NBA with how we talk all about the, the three-point shooting that takes over the league now, all this pace and space stuff. So the Knicks led the league in that season, and they shot 1,147 threes. So they led the league in three-point, three-pointers made and three-pointers attempted. 1,147. This season, the Timberwolves were last in the NBA, and they attempted 1,845. So the Knicks that year led the league in three-pointers, and they took about 700 less for the entire season than the Timberwolves did this year. Bomb squad. That's It's, Bomb just, squad. it's funny to think about, right? Like They were chucking up you know, 10 or 15 threes a game or a little more than that, and it was like, oh, my God. Like These guys are bombing from three. It's funny to mm-hmm. compare, man. It, it truly is. And that's why, uh, not even to go off in a different direction, but that's why um, – we should never compare eras. They are entirely different games. So so we can proceed. Exactly. I don't have much to offer up on Stu Jackson because it's funny with, with us being a little on the younger side. It's most of these guys that we just know by name rather than you know have direct experience with them, save for Jeff and Gundy, who we'll get into in a little bit. It's more of the memories rather than the visceral feelings that we have, which applies to some of the newer generation coaches, which I think almost all of them, I kind of, no matter how young it was, I had a, like a personal feeling and I can remember when they came to the Knicks or when they got fired or kind of what happened. So with these guys, it was tough. I With Don Nelson was kind of a funny one to me because he the Knicks hired him and he went 31 and 25 and then mm-hmm. he resigned. 
and they were nine games over 500 when he resigned. Like that's crazy. I don't. I don't think that would ever happen in today's NBA. Uh, no, t- today's usually after you go on a bad slide, you lose eight or nine. And look at Fizdale. You, you right, lose exactly. a, a, a bunch in a row, and uh, suddenly it's well, uh, he's lost the locker room. The team has quit. Uh, he wasn't able to get any of these wins that normally he would get. Uh, this is an indi- indicator of a cultural locker room change, and it's time for him to go. And uh, it's it's very strange that that could seemingly happen when one is nine games over 500 and yeah. seemingly heading for a very successful season. So um, unless he's pulling a Derek Fisher behind closed doors, then uh, I'm not really sure um, what the true rationale would be for that. But I had a few notes on Don Nelson that was kind of funny to read up on from being this far separated. Because obviously he was a really successful NBA coach when he went to other places like you know Golden State and Dallas. He... And Starks, Ewing, and Mason all butted heads. Like, I think it was pretty clear that they didn't like each other, which was reason enough and basically why he was let go. Starks at one point said that Nelson was a nightmare and that their rift could never heal. And, you know, I, I'm a little surprised it wasn't like John Starks to say something off the cuff like that. Like, I, he wasn't really a reactionary guy, you know? It's, it's a little surprising to see that from him. I get, It led to Van Gundy, so that was something that I guess ended up being a positive in the long run, that Van Gundy had been with the Knicks forever. And the Knicks appointed him to head coach basically immediately once he left, and then he st- stuck on for a little while after that. I feel like I probably put Hubie up a little bit higher, uh, just in my own world for a second. But I feel like my stance on Hubie is not objective with the Knicks and more so over time from yeah. listening to his inspirational uh, commentary during games when he gives you like a, there you go. Or something like there's that, and he's just sort of. There's nothing better. Yeah, I feel like I, yeah, I feel like I accomplish things when he says that about another player, you know. <laughs> so, um, I, I think that's why I had Hubie even higher than maybe. I, I I didn't take a look, so I wanted to be surprised when we were doing the pod. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to, I didn't look at the fan rankings, but uh, where did you have Hubie? I had him number five. I had Patino ahead of him, just because Patino had the. The nice year where they made the second round and they were the Knicks were fifty two and thirty. They were kind of this up and coming team, and then they kind of ran into the the buzzsaw. So let's move into the next tier, kind of, because we already talked about some of these guys. So number four for the listeners was Hubie Brown. I had Rick Pitino number four. So who did you have number four? I had Hubie at four. Okay, so let's talk about Hubie for a second because you mentioned his history as the broadcaster, and that's kind of how we know him now. But he was with the Knicks for a long time. He was with them for five years, which in Knicks world for a head coach, I mean, that's an eternity. And he was 142 and 202, but the first couple years, they were much better. They won over 45 games, and then they kind of tailed off mm-hmm. at the end because of a variety of things. Some injuries ended up giving them issues. But I don't think his record was as indicative of his performance just because of those things that happened at the end. It's it's interesting to look back on. Let's go, since there's not that much to say on Hubie, let's go into the top three and we can have a little debate here. I, I wonder if we're all in agreement. I would I guess that we would be. So I'll just read them right down and we'll just talk about them as a group. So the listeners had Red Holzman, Pat Riley, and Van Gundy as one, two, and three. And so did I. Did you agree? You said Red, Pat, and then Van Gundy? Yes. I added some 
I think personal bias to my two and three and flip flop. So I had uh, Jeff Van Gundy at two and Pat Riley at three. Okay, let's argue about it because Holzman's clearly number one. So give me your Van Gundy's better than Riley take. Give me the spiel. Um, again, it was a uh, personal bias. I, I thought they both. <laughs> That's I, a good I enough they, reason. That's yeah, a good reason I, as any, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not really going to sit here and uh, argue objective facts so much as I'm going to say, um, growing up, Jeff Van Gundy was more important to my basketball life than uh, Pat Riley. So I, I guess, I guess my thing is they had, they both had success. Yeah, with the team, they, they did. I, they're two of the best three coaches um, the team has ever had. I, I would probably argue that they would be that way for this entire list both of our sections i I mean you could make the case yeah i think that's pretty safe to say (laughs) so so i don't think putting one at two or one at three is is overly terrible but um i I don't know i just couldn't i couldn't bring myself to do it because riley had some really good years including the 161 year so there was that i just think i I don't know I, i don't know because the 90s knicks as a whole i just feel like Riley was probably the better coach. I, I'll give you that, like, with the Knicks. I'll give you that. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I, I just think that the personal touch for Van Gundy is probably what sets me over the top. It, it's hard to argue with the results that Riley had here in New York. I'm just looking at, like, if you go down the win column, it's 51 wins in his first year, 60, then 57, then 55. There's not really much of a tail off. That's pretty much the same performance year after year. Yep. His first year, they go to the conference semis, then the conference finals, then the NBA finals. Uh, and then they lose in the conference semis again. So, I mean, these are good deep runs every year with really good teams. So I, I'm not going to – I guess I'm just going to concede that objectively you would probably be correct. Um, but I just I just like Jeff Van Gundy. Oh, I'm makes sorry. sense. You were what, an impressionable seven-year-old kid when they made the finals or something, right? Kid yep. getting into the Knicks. It makes mm-hmm. sense. I, I think there's an argument to be made there. And especially with the way, I mean, it, when we're ranking these, you know, it, it's a matter of it's for fun. And I think almost every single Knicks fan would say they like Jeff Van Gundy more than Pat Riley. And it, although they both ended up leaving a tad unceremoniously with Riley, obviously not accepting the contract extension and then going right to the heat and Van Gundy basically just getting burned out and end up, you know, just resigning because of that. There's, there was a bad taste left in the mouths of both here. So when it comes down to it, it's who had the higher success. And they both made the finals, which is awesome. But with Riley, it's just the, the legendary story about how he faxed them his resignation or something and like said, I'm not going to come back to the Knicks. And then he ended up going to the Heat basically because he wanted both GM and coaching powers. And that's all it came down to. Yeah, see, I, I think I think that was sort of what it did it for me because, I mean, it was that, it was that, and then like my again, I I'm young and impressionable. All I'm hearing about is basically like, fuck Pat Riley. Like everybody yeah, hated yeah, yeah. Pat Riley. By the time as I, as I'm getting into basketball, and um, on top of that, like Jeff was an assistant with the team for a while, so he was a familiar face. So it was like the combo of the two, and then. He also just didn't look like a dick. Like Pat Riley has a very, <laughs> like, like a, a very hateable face, very punchable face. Like you, you would hate that guy 
even if he was the nicest guy alive, just by looking at him. So like, oh, that already not going for him. You know, I, I, I don't know. I just, I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't. I don't blame it. He's not a likable guy. And when they would chant Pat the Rat when he came back, oh, just absolutely legendary. So let's move because we both agree Holzman. So I'm just going to read down the rankings of our uh, our old time guys here. So from eight to one, I had Willis Reed, Stu Jackson, Don Nelson, Hubie Brown, and then my top four, Rick Pitino, Jeff Van Gundy, Pat Riley, and Red Holzman. The listeners had Rick Pitino at number eight, Stu Jackson, Don Nelson, Willis Reed, Hubie Brown number four, and then their top three were Van Gundy, Riley, and then Holzman number one. And Kyle had Stu Jackson eight, Willis Reed, Don Nelson. Do you have Hubie five? No, sorry, I had Hubie four. Okay, Rick Pitino five, Hubie four, and then Pat Riley three, Van Gundy two, and Holzman number one. So some big names there. We also have some big names in our next section, but those big names did not bode quite as well as some of the names did on that side. So let's get right into this one because this is fun to reminisce about some of these just horrendous horrendous situations that happened to the Knicks. And I think going back down the rabbit hole and reading some of the news articles back then too, it's funny to put it in perspective a little bit and say the way that people were writing about things, the way that guys were covering the Knicks and the vernacular that was used by the players and the coaches, some of the things that surrounded the team, it was just almost unbelievable. And it makes sense why we all feel like we do about the Knicks. But it also... I might be naive, and I'm a little on the younger side, of course, because I was born in 95. But it also makes me think that when I read this kind of stuff, this this level of dysfunction, I don't think it will happen again, at least in the foreseeable future. But with Dolan at the helm, you never know. So we'll see with a head coach that the Knicks bring in. I just don't think anything could torpedo as bad as some of these did. So let's go one by one here, because each one deserves its own time to talk about it so for number eight from the listeners they had the one the only isaiah thomas i also had isaiah thomas at number eight did you yeah he most certainly he <laughs> most certainly had to be number eight there's no if ands yeah there's no if ands or buts about i mean he just he was unequivocally the worst uh thing that ever happened to New York, he just he just quite simply was. I don't think there's no two ways about it. It was uh, quite possibly the worst thing that has ever happened to this franchise. <laughs> was because I mean, look, every franchise goes through like downward spirals or little swoons, and the Knicks had just come off of, I mean, basically a decade or or almost. I mean, the, they were no worse than like at least a, for the most part a playoff team. They were a playoff team, a contender, pretty much their entire existence. To some degree. And then Isaiah was just the thing that turned us into the laughing stock. I mean, this is sort of where, uh, you know, the transfer of power to Dolan came over, then Dolan and Isaiah. I mean, it was just, it's, when you think about the Knicks' dysfunction, he's always on the forefront of your brain. He's always the first thing you think about. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, of course he was eight. Of course he was the worst thing. He, ha- he had to be. It was he never going to be anyone else could never be and based off your point too about van gundy let's compare scenarios here so isaiah comes to the knicks and i was eight or nine 
and he left the Knicks, I think, when I was, you know, like 12 or 13. And I was a little kid, and I was like, this guy stinks. I hate him. Everything about him. And you knew because all your friends that were Knicks fans, even the young kids knew this guy stinks. You'd watch the Knicks games. They'd just be hollering to fire him, and especially when he assumed the reins as head coach. That was when it really came to a head and was just terrible. Mm-hmm. So he was 56-108 and 108 as the coach of the Knicks. And there's a lot of things that we'll talk about with some other coaches that also almost thread into his tenure with the Knicks because obviously he was the GM and then came to coach the team after they had a few candidates flame out. But it was just mm-hmm. headline. Not only was the team terrible, there was the whole disgusting sexual assault or sexual, you know, whatever they gave it the denomination that they paid off the woman through the MSG company, which was just terrible for the Knicks and a really bad look. And it, it makes you think now if something like that happened, how we'd kind of view him. Like, I don't think he would still have much of a a standing if that happened now with how much we've been empowering victims. And now he's still on TV. I don't know. It's just a little, the whole Isaiah experience was not only morally repugnant, it was repugnant from just a basketball level too, which made it all the much worse. The thing that ends up happening in the world today is if you're a terrible person or you say questionable things or do questionable things, but your talent is very good. Like if you're a singer or an artist and you put out great music, but you're a terrible human being, like a like a Chris Brown or some of these new rappers who seemingly all have the same sexual assault trials and issues going on, but you put out music, people are gonna support you no matter what. That's just, that's kind of how it's always been. That's how it is in 2018, despite how progressive, you know, we, think we've become mm-hmm. so if if you're terrible and you're a terrible person they get you out of here quickly if you've fallen off a little bit at your craft and you're a terrible person they get you out of here quickly in today's day and age back then that wasn't so much the case and maybe that's due to social media and everything else nowadays it's easier to create that outcry and you know have our voices heard collectively but i mean i i just find it hard to imagine that um like you said, that that would have been allowed in today's day and age had, you know, a Twitter been around. And let's compare situations just for a second, because these are much different situations, but let's think about how we viewed them through the lens of modern society and where we stand. So Isaiah Thomas has the whole thing with the woman that worked at MSG, the whole, they pay her off, you know, he ends up leaving and it was partly because of that, because it was embarrassing for the company and it was a really bad look. Meanwhile, we had when Derek Fisher was the Knicks head coach, think about how long that story was about him and Matt Barnes' ex-wife and how much of a story that was for so long. And I don't even think Derek Fisher necessarily did anything wrong. It's just how we view those two scenarios in hindsight is just, it's wild to think about. And it, it just sheds some light to what you've been saying about how we view things in the modern society, especially when it comes to figures that are supposed to uphold certain values and then when they when they come to a certain situation to bring those values down and like you mentioned are also not very good at their job it makes it that much more difficult to really swallow and it's bad enough as it is and the i'm glad these things have i'm glad isaiah has not come back to the knicks dogs there was the rumors last year and there was the thing when he took over the liberty which again is just the most so weird oh my god it was just one of the most bizarre short-sighted just stupid, irrevocable decisions that 
someone could make. And either way, Isaiah was bad yeah, with yeah, the like, team. It was just oh my god. Like, like, like had had he won like forty five and fifty games back to back years, which made he the did playoffs. with the Pacers. He made the playoffs with the Pacers. with the Pacers, and then he was let go. Yeah. You know, but had he done had he done that, and then he had this, I I I would bet the house that people would have been all over backing him and you know sort of demeaning the girl in the trial and, and of, right. of course she was lying she was doing it for money of course right. but and, and you know maybe it was a good thing that he stunk because then he got burned on the sexual assault thing but um you, you know I, I just remember as that was going on I, he got trashed he got trashed and and rightfully and i just feel like had he been winning had he been this fresh face bringing the the winning culture back to the garden had he done that, I feel like it would have been a whole a whole different way we would look at that incident. But uh, I don't know. I don't think the stink has gone off yet. I think you could say it to any Knicks fan. I think make the cutoff, you know. So I said I was born in 95, maybe a couple years younger than me. And even people that know the Knicks, like you bring up that name and Knicks fans just want to vomit. And I don't think that's mm-hmm. going to change anytime soon. I think I'll be 80 and Isaiah Thomas, the player, has never meant anything to me. I've never cared because Isaiah, the executive and the coach, was the guy that defined himself for it through my eyes and I think through our generation because right. he was on the way out. See, when you were born, he was still in the NBA, but he was a shell and he wasn't really right. contributing much anymore. So he didn't even have that going for him. And then when he came to the Knicks, he just really tarnished his image, at least through Knicks fans. I think there's some people that... We'll watch him on TV and think of that. But Knicks fans, as soon as they see his face or hear his name, it's just like a gag reflex just hits. It, it's just yeah. automatic. Now, moving on to the next couple, and we can absolutely go one by one, but I'm more so curious for the next three how you and the fans ranked them, and maybe we can get to the fans after, because I feel like you could put any of these three in any three of those spots. And I feel like just performance based, like and like we could put we can cover up their names and you say you know so and so is here two years, won this many games and this many games in his seasons and you could do it for all of them because they were all there I think two or three years or or one year in Larry Brown's case, yeah. And um, I feel like you would just you wouldn't know what you were looking at. You, everybody missed the playoffs. Everyone won twenty to thirty right. games. It was just a, <laughs> it was a bloodbath. So. I don't know how you had the rank to let you know how mine, uh, my number seven was at least. Um, where is it? All yeah, right. So, say your number seven, and we'll talk about that guy. I, I had Larry Brown just because he was here for a year. He I came had in. Larry Brown number um, seven. He won, yeah, I did. Okay, he came. He, he was here for a year. He won. He won twenty three and fifty nine. Uh, they were last. They were last in the Atlantic. Obviously, they missed the playoffs. <laughs> I just feel like that alone, like it, it was, it was the most meaningless. Like I sometimes forget that Larry Brown was here because it was so short and underwhelming. Like he came in, impacted nothing, changed nothing. I understand the the roster was what it was, but you, you come in, you win twenty three games, and then you're just out immediately. It's just it's funny to me, and longevity wise and performance wise, that gets you seven. For such a classic coach, too, like he had had such a track record of success. Hall of Fame coach, exactly. Hall of Fame coach. It's hysterical. Hall of Fame coach, second worst, most recent Nick. So I have a bunch of funny points with Larry Brown. You ready? Yep. So 
He had four years and $40 million left on his contract when they fired him. Of course he did. He had called himself a dead man walking weeks prior to getting fired. He used over 40 different starting lineups with the Knicks that year. Isaiah Thomas said the year before firing him that he would return, got rid of him two weeks later. And then I have a little quote from an old friend, Stefan Marbury. So just just listen to this exchange that was always through the media because this is basically why Brown was dismissed. Him and Marbury butted heads through the media constantly. And it was just like a a theme as the Knicks tanked and got worse. And Marbury was their guy because this was the guy they traded for. The Knicks always thought he was really good and he had some good years, but obviously he was never what they hoped for. So uh, I'll read both sides here and you just, just take a listen. So Marbury says he always crosses the line. That's nothing new. Certain coaches deal with certain things certain ways, and he handles his things through the media as opposed to sitting down and talking with people. And still, if you sit down and talk with coach, it's liable to get back to everyone, so you're not really safe there either. (laughs) (laughs) So Larry Brown says, To his player, his starting point guard on his team, through the media, not to his face. He says, So, you're the best guard in the league, and the team is 17-45. Yeah, it's the coach's fault. I don't know why you play a team sport and not be concerned about making your teammates better and helping your team win games. That's the only thing that really matters. And if you're the best player, surely you're going to have some effect on the game's outcome. Surely. (laughs) I'm crying. This was his starting point guard. The Knicks season had 20 games left, and he said, if you're actually good, why do we have 17 wins? (laughs) Why would they do this? It's so funny. I was crying laughing reading the article. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was not ideal, and it, in any sense of the word, it was not ideal. So, um, so I, I don't know. I mean, the the Larry Brown, the Larry Brown thing just stunk. It was it was it was a bad fit. He couldn't do anything with it. He couldn't get along with it. You know how hard it is in your first year to have a relationship go that bad with your star player. Not even like, the after usually, season. It was in the middle yeah, of the that, season. The, that's normally like an after the season heading into training camp or like exiting training camp. You guys aren't getting along. You have a difference of philosophy, something in your first season, which is already going terribly. You, you're already underperforming. The fans probably already hate you and want you out. And uh, the only good thing we have at that time is Stefan Marbury because we have no other star and you don't even get along with him publicly behind closed doors. And you just, Throwing each other under the bus, it was a train wreck. Of course, he was. To me, yeah. To me, I felt like it had to be. Those two had to be the worst. Yeah. I was interested to see if anyone was gonna try to bump Larry Brown up just off his namesake. But yep. I'm glad you at least. We'll get to the fans in a while, but yes, yeah, uh, I'm glad. I'm glad you're there with me. To go off that, our listeners did in fact bump Larry Brown to number six. Could you guess who they had seven? Uh, I'm gonna. I feel like these three are tight, so it, I I feel like it's Lenny Wilkins, and I feel like that's just egregious. It is not Lenny Wilkins. Is it Don Chaney? Nope. What? Derek Fisher, number seven put- from the fans. Yep. So fair. Let's. I know you're you're a bit of a Fisher defender. I think you're on record and- as saying that. And it was all – yeah, and you know what's funny? Before everyone jumps down my throat and angrily tweets me <laughs> in the next week, I did not like Derek Fisher at the time that he was here. I, I thought 
I had a lot of not, not I mean, you could probably go back and find the tweets. I, I did not in, enjoy anything during his tenure. And then after he had gotten canned, and, and also my my thing with him had nothing to do with his off the court sleeping with of course players' girlfriends issues, but um, I just started to think about like what he was trying to implement and basically the issues he had implementing it and the reason for you know what he was trying to do was basically progress with today's NBA, which is fast paced, a lot of pick and rolls. Uh, he's really open about wanting to do that. We saw Jerry and Grant do that a lot with the team that year. Uh, we saw um, – I, I just feel like he he had the sense of the modern coach that we'd been yearning for. And the reason the team underperformed, despite the obvious talent not being there, was uh, Phil wanting him to run the triangle stuff. And I feel like he – basically was trying to run the complete opposite of what Phil wanted. So like for me, it was a hindsight thing. I started to think, and you guys, you'll yell at me when I get there, but I had him ranked much higher. And I just felt like philosophy wise, what he was trying to do, he couldn't do. And you could actually see uh, if you look back that it was the right thing for the team at the time to try to play as a faster team, to really try to push the ball. He, you know, he had an emphasis on the fast break and that's things that we've like the last three years been yearning for because they've been bogged down and they haven't been able to do jack shit. So especially now we see KP, I don't know. So like it, for me, it's all hindsight. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. So I, I don't blame them for, you know, viewing it objectively from that season either. But I, I was, I'm surprised sixth. I thought, I don't know. What well, did you have? They had him seventh. They had Larry Brown ahead of him. I had him sixth. So I think that with Fisher, it was – more of a problem of who he was and who his what his voice was to the players rather than his system because as you mentioned he didn't agree with what Phil wanted to do and it's ultimately why he was fired side note if you go back and read the piece from when Fisher was let go just a classic Phil condescending move where he was like oh you know I think Derek will be really happy and he'll have a lot of stress relieved now that he's not doing this job anymore like Dude, he's fired because he didn't do what you wanted to do, which was stupid in the first place. So, just just a classic. But I do agree with you to a certain extent. I think that he was not as bad as we might have remembered. But he, it, they had their worst record as a franchise with him at the helm. And a lot of that was out of his hands. They were 23-31 and 31 when they let him go. And it, I think it felt like they were worse because they started out better. So that hurt a little bit. But overall, I I struggled to put him over some of the other guys. Probably because of my age and because I didn't have the same sort of true memories of a couple of the other guys. And I'm sure some people that are older might have a different perspective on this. And I'm curious how that might play out and I, I think with our listeners you had a lot of people that didn't that remember Derek Fisher very vividly and that's why he ended up being so low on the list so just for reference here so number eight all three of us had Isaiah number seven Kyle and I had Larry Brown and the listeners had Derek Fisher number six I had Derek Fisher number six the listeners have Larry Brown so Kyle who do you have number six I had Don Chaney Don Chaney okay yeah yeah, I just 
the, the, I, I don't, I guess I'd be curious as to why anybody has him higher. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I, I don't see what was impressive about his tenure. What's the first year they went, he went 20 and 43, second year, 37 and 45, which was his best season. And that's eight games under 500 missed the playoffs. And third game before getting uh, fired was 15 and 24. So I don't know what's there that bumps him up over. I don't know. To me, he was sort of. He, I think he probably would have been seven had Larry Brown's first year not been so tumultuous. Mm-hmm. When I was when I was looking at it, it was. <laughs> it might have been partly because I was reading the stories about how he was let go, and I just felt bad for him. Because I, <laughs> it was a couple funny notes. So he didn't talk with Isaiah for two or three days leading up to him being let go, and it basically just came on, and he was expecting it. But they almost like let the process go out. Isaiah Thomas was also on Letterman the day before they fired him and made a comment about it. And then Letterman asked him if he was going to fire him. And he basically just didn't answer, which was as good as firing him right then. They also made him come into MSG and then fired him when he got there rather than let him know before he got to MSG. And here's a little nugget for you that I found today. Don Chaney was the first coach in Isaiah Thomas's career to give him a DNP in 94. He was coaching the Pistons, gave him a DNP in 94, and then Isaiah fired him. Payback's a bitch. I don't know. It it came back around. It absolutely came back around. Good find. Yeah. Thanks, uh, (laughs) New York Times article from 2004. Also, Lon Kruger, who coaches Oklahoma, and Trey Young was an assistant on the Knicks team, which I did not know. I think it was the only time he's coached in the NBA. I thought that was interesting, too, because he was also let go. (laughs) <laughs> he was not retained at all. So Don Chaney, yeah, not great. And he was another one where the garden just started to turn on him like none other until Isaiah. So let's get into the next tier here. So the listeners had Don Chaney five, as did I. Was your five Lenny Wilkins? My five was Lenny Wilkins. All right. Let's talk about the, uh, at the time, the most winningest and losingest coach in NBA history. So he was basically brought on after and was expected to, in a classic Knicks move, it was like a glitz and glamour thing that they wanted someone that had had this big track record and thought it would be beneficial to the team. This is one of the first things that I can remember as being a young Knicks fan when the Knicks had Lenny Wilkins as their coach. It was just like, oh, I know who that guy is. And, you know, he's the Knicks coach. And then when they let him go, it kind of, you know, it's something that I was I was aware of. What, what are your feelings on him? Um, my feelings on him were of the bottom of the barrel candidates that we had to choose from. Um, he... He had them in the playoffs. That's it. That's was my exact reasoning too. <laughs> so don't, yeah, I, I don't. They did something good with him. Okay, that's more than we can say. I mean, it was the Starberry Knicks. They got swept by the Nets. I recall that. And um, they were quite simply just in the playoffs. And I feel like that. And it sounds so gross saying it out loud and sometimes reminding yourself, but like 
it, it's quite sad that like, well, the Knicks made the playoffs with this coach is like this, this big deal. Like, yes. Because everyone else, every, it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. A lot of guys don't make the playoffs and they make it one year and then, you know, it doesn't go quite as well the other year. It's it's sad. So, I mean, that's what I had. They made the playoffs. Yeah, they got split by the Nets. It is what it is. Those are the good Jason Kidd Nets. They were no slouches, but getting swept is getting swept. Yeah, I mean, he was only there for the year. He was 40 and 41 as Knicks coach. He finished out the season and then he ended up leaving after that. So it was a short tenure. And there was a lot of, in classic Knicks fashion, there was a lot of discussion about whether he had been forced out or he had decided to leave because he was an older guy by this point. And it was uh, it was one of those situations where you had a lot of moving parts and perhaps the funniest two moving parts. Number one was also what happened with Isaiah when Isaiah fired Don Chaney. And I just thought the quote was funny because it basically had the same quote for this one. So when he fired Don Chaney, he said, I'm not here to point out negative things about Don or our former coaching staffs, said Thomas, who also considered himself for the, for the position. So that sentence is hysterical. Like he, Imagine considering yourself to be the head coach. You're like writing down your credentials. You're reading your own resume. Like, what the fuck is this process like? <laughs> and the same thing happened with Lenny Wilkins. Because yeah, no, Isaiah no, no, said, like, I'm not going to consider myself for the position. But you know he was. Which is just, it's just hysterical to I, think I would, about. No, I, I would love to do that. To be quite honest, that, that'd be—I don't know. That's very—that's that's very funny. The more I think about, it. that's like that's like your boss firing you. It, yeah, it is. It's your boss firing you, and then just like, yeah, you know, we want someone like this, 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 and that. You know, going forward, and I think it's just best if we part ways, and I'll just take the reins. Yep. You're like, oh, oh, okay, nice. And the other thing in the article that aged very poorly was that the leading candidate to coach the Knicks was none other than Phil Jackson, who was the favorite to coach the team, according to their first news article. <sighs> Tough stuff. I feel, like, I feel like that would have done significantly better. He would have done significantly, significantly better just being the coach than having to be the president GM. Exactly. All right, let's get into the top tier here, which, again, really not saying much. So I had Lenny Wilkins four, as did the listeners. So who did you have for Mr. Maggio? Um, I had Derek Fisher four. Okay. And I, I think number four. And again, people ain't gonna like that. Is, <laughs> no, 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 I know, I know. Look, <laughs> it, just the, my rationale is in hindsight. I feel like, first of all, that roster sucked dicks. So let's not <laughs> let's not sit here and, and act like he had you know. Even the Rose Mellow KP roster, where you could be like, well, there's a couple of players on there. Maybe he can make work. It was not a good roster. And it was a ragtag bunch. I, I don't know. I just. I mean, Cole Aldrich, still in the NBA. It's more yeah. than you can say for some of the other guys that are on that team. <laughs> Cole Aldrich in the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, I, oh, my God. I, I don't know. For me, it's, it's very literally a hindsight pick where I just thought office philosophy, like, even now, some of the things we're talking about with the head coaches, we say the same things that basically Fisher sort of was doing. We, we want to if we if we hire some fresh blood, not another run of the mill coach who's just going to come in and do an average job and leave. You want a guy who, you know, ha- has a modern offensive philosophy to the game to that approach. And I just feel like 
we had that, didn't have the roster for it, and he was a little early on what he wanted to implement in terms of where the game was at. So I feel like had you you know had he tried to do those things going into next year, it would have seemed like a slam dunk. It would have been like, well, look at these young guards he has. They want to play tempo. They want to push. A lot of pick and rolls. They shoot more threes. Like I feel like, and there's no Phil triangle bogging them down. Totally a hindsight pick. Totally me just thinking he got a raw deal in terms of his X's and O's. Um, that that's that's it. I. I expect to be yelled at. I understand the results weren't there and there was other factors involved. I, I get it. I just, total hindsight. It's I thought about it a lot. a shitstorm of people. So it doesn't matter how you rate these people. As long as Isaiah's number eight from seven to four, I really can't argue that much. I didn't, I don't agree putting Fisher that high, but your case is totally fine. And it, it makes sense. Oh my God. Just reading the names, just seeing these names just brings back so many memories and i'm sure people will have other stories and anecdotes that they remember from when these guys were head coaches that were just unbelievable to believe that they were actually real in the context of a real nba franchise and some of the things that happened because even my brief research today just to make sure i was brushing up and remembering what happened was um appalling and uh scary so let's get into the top three so number three the listeners and I both had our duly departed Jeff Hornacek at number three. Are we on the same page there? Very much so. Um, I felt last year it, it was just a very ill-fitting roster for him. Um, there's really there's really not much you could do with a steeply declining aging mellow trying to run the show with a you know. Seeking monster, seeking a monster payday. Derrick Rose looking to get his buckets before he goes elsewhere for a, a large contract. Because if we've recalled early in the season, he wanted that uh, with the Knicks going forward. He wanted a really big deal long term with them. And I just feel like he, I, I don't know. It was just, I feel like there was factors he couldn't really control last season. And then this year, I feel like was the real test for him. And I thought he did in. I had we all had lots of issues with him because and and I feel like you sort of had a great amount of curve because we thought a lot of the mistakes he made were very obvious in terms of the today's game but he was also with, with a fully healthy team they were average to a T they didn't play bad defense they didn't play good defense they were like with everyone healthy they were like 14th to 16 for for a while, I think there were three months of the, of the year or so. Um, like, I think this was in January, like right around early January after uh, Christmas time. And offense was the same way. And that wasn't even with maximizing KP. They still had a very average offense. And it was like, yeah, I mean, they had the makings of a an early exit playoff team, you know, at that time. And I just feel like, you know, the injury woes that he had and, uh, couple that with his sort of obvious mistakes that could have really taken them a little bit further early on. I feel like that probably is good enough to get him three. Like I felt like again we're we're comparing you know shit to shit here, but I felt I felt no I felt he was he was a fine coach. I, I don't I don't know I, the injuries ended up happening and they, you know they traded the team and it is what it is. But I don't know. I thought he was just average. Yeah, I have no ill will in my heart towards at Jeff Hornacek. Like some of these other guys, I see the name 
and it's just like hurts to look at. Hold on a second. It's just like I, I think we talked about it ad nauseum, especially recently. So I don't want to get too far into the X's and O's because we've mentioned it a ton. He wasn't given a fair shot. Do we think he was a great coach? No, but he was not anywhere near as bad as these other guys were for the Knicks, especially after uh, KP's injury. Because this record, he was sixty and one hundred four with the Knicks, which looks bad. But if KP doesn't get hurt, that might look a lot nicer and a lot cleaner. And you don't know where we're standing right now, so given a tough hand and there's no denying that so let's get into the top two the listeners and i agree on the top two so we have two coaches left i'll say our order first and then you can see if you agree the listeners and i both had mike d'antoni two and then mike woodson one are we on the same page there my friend yep all right so these guys were back to back and somewhat ironically woodson was brought on to D'Antoni's staff and almost immediately was pegged as a guy that could step in should D'Antoni's um, tenure go south, which did boy happen. Did it. And yeah, it happened. So D'Antoni was 121-67 and 67 as the Knicks coach came in. And this was, again, like, I think I was, you know, 14, 13, 14 when he was brought on. So this was exciting because he had a great track record with the Suns and it was a name that I knew. And it, it was it was fun. You knew that you could have somewhere to go. He was established. And they had some fun teams, most notably the Amari, Landry Fields, Danilo Gallinari, Wilson Chandler team before the Knicks ended up trading for Mello that were fun mm-hmm. to watch. And even some of the teams, like, they weren't great, but even, like, the Chris Duhon, David Lee. All-time Al- leader and assist, Chris Duhon. Exactly. Knicks legend, Chris Duhon. Knicks trivia answer all the time, Chris Duhon. And Al Harrington is a guy I always enjoyed watching. They had some teams that were watchable, but it was yeah, yeah, he did. at the end. And you realize yeah, it, it makes you think in context how shitty our existence has been and how shitty our upbringing has been with the Knicks. Like, I'm sitting here and I'm like, huh, Al Harrington, he was fun to watch. That's, that's the state we're at right now. It's, oh my God. But, of course, he was buoyed by Linsanity and then tanked by it after it was uh it was a tough exit and it was again a time where you just felt like he had to go when you think back on the d'antoni era in new york and obviously he's been a wild success for the rockets what do you think of and what defines that era for you the the only thing that i i constantly think about because it happened the very next year was um carmelo anthony refusing to play the four for mike d'antoni to stretch the floor and kind of maximize the offense to, to be in his system, which was obviously very successful. And then to do that, to get D'Antoni booted, to put up a stink, only to then have to play the four the following year with Mike Woodson on the way to having your best season ever. And that's what I always uh, – I don't know. That's what I always think because while Woodson was, I think – a very good coach with the Knicks. I don't think there's any denying that. It just kind of hurts because, um, you know, D'Antoni is, I think, a, a better coach with a better track record and a history of having that offense. And I just feel like, I mean, man, imagine that Woodson offense in, in 2012 to 13 where they were shooting threes, Mel's playing to four, they're, everyone's efficient. It was beautiful. And imagine if that was D'Antoni's team. Would they have been even more sound? 
How would that have affected some of the roster moves had Melo been able to play the four the year before? And we get a couple years of Melo at the four. Does that mean he does that for the rest of his next duration? How does that affect the team? How does that affect the moves, the signings that we do from there on? Like that's it, it snowballs for me. So that's what I always think about is I think about the failed relationship between Carmelo Anthony and Mike D'Antoni and what could have been because I feel like it's it's tragic. I feel like that gets overlooked sometimes. It was just mellow and, and a coach didn't get along. And I feel like, man, had they did because the next year they had their best season ever with a coach who wasn't even known for that kind of play style playing the way he, you know, D'Antoni would have wanted that. I mean, tell me what you think. Uh, when you think back, but that that's what I think. No, it's its an excellent point. It's an excellent point because you can even start to think if Melo and D'Antoni had gotten along, why couldn't their success have been continued? Their problem was when they got rid of some of those vets and they changed their play style a little bit and it was never the same. If Melo and D'Antoni had gotten along, maybe they could have survived based on some of the other role players. They could have implemented a system to a more effective level. It's I think you're absolutely right. He was screwed as soon as Melo got there. I think everyone that knew what D'Antoni was about and knew his personality and knew Melo's personality, I think it was just doomed from the start. It just never had a chance of working out. It really didn't. Because I, I don't know. I'd say like this is what I mean. Like it bothers me because Amari played the five right with D'Antoni that first year. Mm-hmm. So. So then what would have happened, Amari, he wasn't an excellent defender by any means, but it was sort of the KP thing where you put him on the perimeter, you make him have to rotate and recover, and he struggles, but you keep him by the rim. Suddenly he's swatting a lot of shots. He tightens up a little bit. It's like, well, what would that have been like for Amari having to just play the five full time from there on out? How I feel like him and Melo could have been a nightmare at the five and the four. You know, I feel like that would have been the beginning and again, I feel like that's the theme is some of these some of these misses that they had were just early. Like it was too early. Like had, you know, D'Antoni and that team happened last year, two years ago. It would have been a no-brainer to play Amari at the five, Melo at the four for some stretches. And it happened in 2010, 2011, and everyone's like, eh, no, that's not how this is going to go. I still don't know if that combo was ever going to work out just because of their games. But it is incredibly exciting to think about if they put the right guys around them. If you put a nice ball distributor, we talk all the time about Mellows, and you know he was getting a lot of slander on Twitter last night. People were having a field day, making fun of him. We talk a lot about what he could be. If you had peak Mello in 2012-13 when he was spot-up shooting, they were finding him, and then you had a, a healthy Amari at the five, their games were never a good fit, but if you put some other guys around them with the D'Antoni system where they were shooting a lot of threes, like you think if the Knicks had a Trevor Ariza at the three, like a good defender, Melo could get some of the big guys in the post. It's, and like, you know, an Eric Gordon, I'm thinking in context of what Tony has now, and obviously those things weren't a given to happen back then. But it is, it's, it's just something that we have to consider and we'll never know because it was doomed for reasons sometimes beyond basketball they included basketball but they went so far beyond them that it was just a right. it wasn't a relationship that could ever have been healed and i think linsanity also was a huge factor here because we had Melo out for that and then when Melo came back Melo was clearly salty about the linsanity thing i don't know if you've ever say that but we all know that to be true and he didn't like that someone else was getting all the all this attention and everything like that 
And that kind of parlayed itself into a dislike of D'Antoni and that system and everything that came off of that. So we know D'Antoni is a good coach. I don't think anyone would deny that because he's had two great tenures that were sandwiched by this this bad Knicks tenure. So I think he's a good coach, and we can confirm that. It was just in New York. It, the cards didn't fall. But I, here's, a, here's a question that I have for you. So we've talked with, with our number three and number two, with D'Antoni and Hornacek, and we look at guys like Lenny Wilkins and Larry Brown that were incredibly successful elsewhere. We keep saying that they were given bad hands. Are the Knicks just that bad of a hand that no matter what coach they get, they're going to be in trouble? Or do you think that we can move past that and have a relationship finally work out as we look towards the future and hiring a new coach? I I feel like the bad hands in the past came with guys who were either established as NBA players or they had made names for themselves elsewhere. And, you know, for, I mean, you just look, look at the, the list of like swingmen that they had in the, the 2000 to 2010 range. You know, you had your Al Harrington's, you had your guys like that who were just going to come in, kind of get theirs, you know, run of the mill guys like T-Mac or Steve Francis or, you know, it just wasn't, it really wasn't there for, most of that decade and I feel like that's why they shoveled through coaches because they can't you know there's always got to be a scapegoat as you know and when you keep locking the team into bad deals and making worse trades like it's you can't get rid of all those all the time you know the coach is going to have to be the guy that takes the fall but I think going forward there's hope only because this team isn't tied up in a lot of that outside of Joakim Noah I mean really all you have is you know, KP and a bunch of short-term deals or, you know, younger talent, whether or not they work out is a different story. But just having a, a 22, almost 23-year-old KP, despite his ACL injury and nothing else, it just feels like, you know, it's, it's sort of a blank slate. Like, whatever the coach is, all you got to do is come in and maximize, maximize KP. That's it. It's not like you got to come in and, well, now I got this Melo Amari situation. How am I going to work this out? Well, I had the Melo Amari situation. The last guy took the fall, but now I have Tyson Chandler to add to the mix. How am I going to make this work? Who's going to say, you know, take a seat on the bench? How am I going to do this? Do I play them all at once? That's an ill-fitting. You know, it, it's a different thing now to me. It's like you just have KP to worry about making him happy, signing him to that deal with finding success, uh, success with him. And I, I, I don't know. I, I I feel like that's different. The front office, I, I, it's always been the constant, you know, with Dolan and everything. I, I don't want to be too optimistic about Perry and Cole just yet, but I feel like it's in better shape than it's been in years past for sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it's saying much, but. And expectations will be low initially for whatever coach they end up hiring. They won't come in with the same expectations that, the Isaiah Thomas as GM era always seemed to put on these teams even though they were terrible because they had these high payrolls and they brought in these big-name coaches that were doomed for basketball reasons, for general manager decisions. They put them in terrible spots. And I don't think that's going to be a thing with this new head coach they hire unless the Knicks end up making some crazy deal or signing a a big free agent, which I I don't really see that happening. So you're going to have 
the head coach that comes in, I think I feel pretty confident saying he'll be here longer than Woodson, Hornacek, or Fisher were as head coach unless something goes horribly, horribly wrong, which it somehow always seems to. But you're going to get with this next head coach this coming year, you're going to get KP's first full year healthy. And I think that third year is going to be where it all is determined if that coach is the one that's going to be here. So I think the next coach the Knicks hire is going to be here for at least three years. That's how I see it going down. And it's a different set of expectations. The Knicks are saying different things. We'll see if that actually is backed up. It's the million-dollar question. Can they actually establish some sort of stability at the head coach position? That's why we went through this. You'd almost have to hope it's like the Brett Brown situation in Philly. They went through some down years. They had barren rosters. And they were just like, you know what, man? God damn it. We're going to just draft the best players that we can with these bad rosters. And we're just going to find the coach that we think is the best fit. Just the best coach. We're not trying to fit a roster or, or do it for a play. We're just trying to find the best coach. And they like Brett Brown, you know, those first couple of years, and they gave him the extension. Just like, look, things are going to start getting better around, you know, around here, hopefully. We want you to be the guy. We like your philosophy. And it's worked out well for them, obviously. So, I mean, you would hope it's sort of like that. 100%. All right, let's go through our final rankings before we get out of here. So, for the newer era, I had Isaiah Thomas, 8, and then... Larry Brown, Derek Fisher, Don Chaney, Lenny Wilkins, and then the top three from three to one were Jeff Hornacek, Mike D'Antoni, and Mike Woodson. The listeners had Isaiah Thomas at eight, and then Derek Fisher, Larry Brown, Don Chaney, Lenny Wilkins, and then the same top three of Hornacek, D'Antoni, and Woodson. Kyle had at number eight Isaiah Thomas, Larry Brown at seven, Don Chaney, Lenny Wilkins, Derek Fisher, and then the same top three of Hornacek, D'Antoni, and Woodson. So a little painful to go through just to think about some of those things, but I think the Knicks need to look back on some of these situations and learn from the mistakes that they made. And I, I we've said it so many times, and I hate to get too optimistic, but I've said it before too. I also think if we're all pessimistic all the time, it makes sports something they shouldn't be, which is just a constant worry and a constant level of apprehension that we shouldn't necessarily have. And it just takes some of the, the fun away from what makes speculation with these kind of things. I think that they will learn from their mistakes. I don't know if that means the next head coach is going to work out, but based on what they're saying, I'd be shocked if they hired someone in the, the vein of like a Lenny Wilkins or a Don Chaney is someone that we've vilified on here, which is a Mark Jackson. I just don't think that they're going to end up going that direction. 